The scriptures of truth are the words of God, which were learnt of God, the Father of truth, and they cannot be broken, but must be fulfilled. And he that doth fulfill is Christ, by whom all things were made and created, who is called the Word of God. From George Fox's work, known as Some Principles of the People Called Quakers. This is the OIM Greek Bible Study. We are reading the first letter of John. This is session number three. The first chapter of the first letter of John, and we are beginning chapter two. Okay, I'm going to read the first six verses of chapter two, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version here. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now by this we may be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. Whoever says, I have come to know him, but does not obey his commandments, is a liar. And in such a person, the truth does not exist. But whoever obeys his word, truly in this person, the love of God has reached perfection. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk just as he walked. At the very beginning of this second chapter, it says, my little children. This is an interesting word here. I'm going to... Technion is a word that means child. It's not the only word, word. But this word also has another sense. All right, this is one of the Greek words for child. But obviously it doesn't mean child in this verse. It's a word that's used to refer to students. How can I put it? A fond manner, like the teacher is very fond of the students and he'll call them technion. I don't know of a real clear English word that would be used to describe that kind of word. If, if a teacher is in a class and he's speaking to a particular child or children, we don't address the child as child or children if we are trying to be close to them. So there's no real good word for this translation in English. And I'm just saying that because these are adults that he's speaking to. Henry, I notice in the um, Goodspeed version, it uses the word dear, dear children. Yeah, now, that may not be, well, may not be in the Greek, but that's the sense of it. That's what I'm trying to say. That's the sense of it, dear children. But I wouldn't call thee a child, David. In English, I would, I would call thee by the name David. That would be friendly, close. How about the word learners? Dear learners. Dear learners, dear student. Something like that. So anyway, that's just a point I wanted to make out here. It's Could you use scholar, Henry? A scholar? Well, to me, that's kind of old-fashioned. Also, scholar implies a lot of intellectual study and such. And, but I'm not quite sure that has it for the way it was intended. Yeah, older English, it would have been appropriate. I mean, the scholars in an elementary school or a grammar school, meaning the, the pupils. Anyway, I don't want to belabor this point here. One more observation, and it's David Pink again. Most of, but not all of, the uh, translations I'm looking at have the 
possessive pronoun of my, my little children. Yeah. It looks like it's supported yeah. in the Greek, ego technion, but there's some that simply <laughs> drop that. It looks like it is a term of endearment. Well, no, there is the word of me. You know, students of mine, Greek does have that word me here. Uh, but I mean, you don't need it. It could just be technia. Okay. These mm -hmm. things I write to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, this word advocate's an interesting word, parakletos. The English translation doing it literally is paraclete. But what the word means is anyone who comes to your aid, to your help, like even in a court, a helper who is next to you to uh, help you in a court case if you have some problem in court. So you can translate this as helper, aid, advocate, someone who's trying to give you advice. Para means alongside, and the K-L-E is the root that means called, someone who's called to be alongside with you, next to you, to help you. And that's the basic meaning of that word. And I recall reading somewhere that this Greek word parakletos was actually even borrowed into Aramaic and Hebrew. They borrowed it from the Greek. It's kind of interesting that my Bible does say helper. It's that kind of sense of just someone who's, help, who's there to help you along in some problem, oftentimes in a, with a, a legal situation, I, not only. I see in the, uh, yes, the Good News Bible, today's English version, American Bible Society's rendition for new readers, spells it out, giving the sense of it without so much a literal rendition. It says, we have someone who pleads with the Father on our behalf. Yeah, that's it. Someone who's helping out. Mm -hmm. And of course, who's the paraclete here? Jesus. Jesus, the righteous one. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins in verse 2. Not for us only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, I'll give you the word. Hilasmos is the word for sacrifice. If you remember in the Jewish religion, you would offer a sacrifice, sacrifice an animal as a means for atoning your sins, the sins of the people. And that's Hilasmos, and it means sacrifice. And Jesus is the sacrifice for those of us who have sinned, but not only us, for all sinners in the whole world. And if you recall elsewhere in the New Testament, because of that, there's no more of a need for further sacrifice of animals. Jesus is the complete, the final sacrifice. In verse 1, the New Jerusalem Bible, instead of using Jesus Christ, the righteous one, uses the upright. That's exactly the same meaning. Righteous is upright. Of course, so often in the New Testament, when you say upright, are righteous, upright in God's eyes, righteous in God's eyes. Okay. That's a good modern translation is upright. And like righteousness would be uprightness, something like that. Uh, let me just give that word here. Dikaios is upright. All right. In righteousness, dikaiosune. Does anyone know if that idea of Jesus being the advocate with the Father occurs in other places in the New Testament, or is it just here? 
I think, I can't recall where, but I, it's where you find Jesus mentioned as the mediator or the intermediary between the Father and us. I think there may be some sense of a helper or an advocate there too, but I can't point to a specific verse at the moment. I have an observation about rendition into English of the uh, Hilasmos. Atoning sacrifice is one that seems closest, but some say expiation, some say propitiation. Neither of those are words that we use very often. <laughs> and maybe we just don't understand yeah, that, that. the whole theory of sacrifice. It's, it's not in our experience, our worldview. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a good observation, David, that we just don't sacrifice animals or people even, you know. I mean, I'm thinking of pagan cultures elsewhere in the world that have actually sacrificed people, you know, and, and among the uh, Aztec peoples in Mexico, there were literally thousands of human sacrifices over the years. I guess I'm wondering so whether the expiation and appropriation, basically, uh, uh, that, that those are meanings for that word. But the basic meaning is the sacrifice. Do they all imply standing in our place? <laughs> in Christian theology, that's probably it. But in terms of this Greek word, hilasmos. I don't think so. Let me just look up the word. Hold on. Hilasmos, okay. appeasement necessitated by sin, expiation, instrument for appeasing, a sacrifice to atone, a sin offering. And the verb, hilaskamai, means to cause to be favorably inclined or disposed, to conciliate, to propitiate. So the understanding was that if you sacrificed something, an animal, a good of some sort, some object, that God would then be favorably inclined to you again, or favorably disposed. And I think that was a general sense of what was sacrificed. But you, you need to recall, too, in what Paul says, we need to become living sacrifices. And we need to transform our minds, renewing ourselves in that renovation through the Holy Spirit. So that that's a very different kind of sacrifice, but that's the kind of sacrifice that is required now. Unfortunately, not enough emphasis is put on it by so many Christian denominations. Yet it's very biblical, it's very much there and clear, this need for true repentance, daily picking up the inward cross of Christ. It's throughout the New Testament, and yet maybe some people pay lip service to it, but it's so essential. I would observe that Old Testament prophets expanded the sense of it, of you know what kind of sacrifice God wants, and it's tzedek, it's righteousness, <laughs> it's behavioral. And it's not just the animals. Eighth-century prophets, but it, that idea is there. Well, that's right here in the section where we just finished reading. We'll get to it in a couple of verses here about how we ought to walk. But let's go back to three. Whoever says, I have come to know him, but does not obey his commandments, is a liar. And in such a person, the truth does not exist. Whoever says, come to know him, and I've mentioned this word, no. This is the word, no, ginosko which has the sense of experience. I'll put that down again. I, I probably can't make enough emphasis on this word, no. Okay, this is one of several words that mean no in Greek, but this particular word also has the sense of no experientially, to experience. 
And so it's much more than just an academic knowing or a verbal knowing, but a real sense of experience. And that's the verb. And the noun is gnosis, same root, which is knowledge. And again, this kind of experiential knowledge. So if you say you've really had this a true experience of God, you've had some type of mystical union, some type of deeper understanding and, and relationship to God. But if you're not doing what God says, not obeying all his orders, then you're a liar. And in such a person, the truth does not exist. And of course, the word for truth we had last week too, very common word in this epistle. If you might say this is the, you can look at this as truth in the sense of being a lie, but also having the spirit of Christ, the spirit of truth, of reality in you. This word means truth, and it also means reality. But in verse 5, whoever obeys his word, obeys what he says. Again, that's the word logos, which means anything verbally expressed, utterance of any sort, verbal expression. It has other meanings, of course, as I've gone over in the past. So whoever obeys his word does what he says. Again, the logos also perhaps referring to Christ within us, obeying that voice within. In such a person, this love of God has reached perfection, has fully developed. Okay, and that in the Greek here is actually a verb here. By this we may be sure that we are in him that we are in this spirit, in the spirit of truth, in the spirit of Christ. Whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk just as he walked. Now again, this word abide, the Greek word, that means remain in, stay in, continue in, and it's a very frequent word in this epistle. I think mine says living in God. Uh, it's not living. It's more the sense of, of being in and staying in and continuing in, remaining in. Well, living would have roughly the same sense, but that's not an exact translation of it, though, because you could come out of that spirit, too, and no longer be in it. It says, whoever says, I abide in him, I am remaining in his spirit, I am in that spirit of Christ, ought to walk just as he walked. And recall last week I talked about this word walk. And what does it mean besides walk? Conversation. Well, that's an older English understanding, but it means basically to uh, conduct oneself, behave. So if you say you're remaining, you are in the spirit of Christ, then you should be behaving just the same way that Jesus behaved. I don't like the word abide because, not, not that it's wrong, it's, it's a correct translation, but it's not an everyday common English word. I just don't use the word abide every day. And this is a pretty common Greek word. You know, you can lose something of the translation there. So behave, conduct oneself, go about, you know, how you, how you go about your day, walk, go about. Any questions on what we've just gone through? Well, uh, Henry... I guess I just wanted to say that I appreciate the uh, reading it now and thinking about the word as more than just the scriptures. I think when I was growing up uh, in the Baptist church, I would have read this and it, maybe I wouldn't have understood it very well, but I would have 
read the word word and I would have thought it, oh, well, this is obviously means the scriptures because I don't really necessarily have a very good grasp of the scriptures or what this is, is trying to ask me to do. I like the idea that it's more than just the scriptures. Uh, certainly, I think Jesus would use the scriptures. But yeah, so I find that to be a really well, awesome point. I guess. He's bringing up a very important point here. Actually, I think Jack, as I had written a, an article on this oh, a zillion years ago, 25 years ago maybe, I don't remember now. But friends made it very clear that nowhere in the Bible does it refer to itself as the Word of God. And if you look at early Christian writings of the first two, three hundred years, you never see the word word here, logos, referring to the Bible or any part of it. It always refers to Christ being the Word of God, the utterance of God, God's verbal expression to us. It's how God makes himself known uh, in a real way. So that early friends made a point that the Bible is not the Word of God that the Bible is talking about the Word of God, Christ Jesus. This was a point that they emphasized. I think Jack would agree with, I, with what I just said. Yes. The word Bible itself does not occur anywhere in the Old and New Testament. The word that conservative friends traditionally have understood is used by the writers is Scripture. And Scripture is the word that we use to refer to the writings. Biblia means book. So Bible, Biblia is a collection of the writings. But the writings themselves are referred to in the Bible as scripture. Yeah, let me go further with that. The word scripture goes back to a Latin word, scriptura, which is a translation of the Greek word graphai. It's a plural form and it just means writings. And that's all they were referring to were the writings when they said the writings, meaning the scripture. So this can be very confusing today when you have, and I, I know both Protestants and Catholics also use the word word to refer to the Bible. So it goes back even before the Reformation, perhaps sometime in the Middle Ages in English, I should say, in English, the word that the Bible is beginning to be called the Word of God. But that's not a biblical understanding. As I said here, the word biblion is the Greek word for book, and the plural form of it, biblia, just means books. And that's where we got our English word Bible. <clears throat> now, I think that word then gets used in many other, borrowed into many other languages to just refer to what we call the Bible today or scripture. It's a collection of the writings. Yeah, and so often early friends would talk about the Bible as the scriptures of truth, and I would capitalize that T, the truth. That's how they'd often describe it, writings of truth, about truth. Henry, I have another question about verse 6, Sure. and, and particularly the verb peripateo. I sense that the writer of this is using it metaphorically. I'm, um, I'm looking at a couple of translations that try to render the sense of it rather than the words. Goodspeed says, whoever says I am always in union with him must live just as he lived. 
So, <laughs> you know, the sense of living rather than walking, today's English version on the same verse says, whoever says that he remains in union with God should live just as Jesus Christ did. So at least two of them are, are going beyond that physical word, <laughs> that uh, yeah. you know, yeah, that's true. anatomical that's word, using your legs. Nancy's word earlier, I forget what the translation uh, it was. Nancy mentioned the word live in her translation. Or uh, what word what was that? Was that the same word? No, it was the word uh, abide. So they're just being very broad here. They're taking some liberties. I'd rather be a little bit closer to the original meaning if we are are aware of it. Not that it's wrong to say that, but it's the best translation. (laughs) So your preference would be what rendition? Behave. It may sound so strange because you just don't see that translation. Uh, in most uh, translations out there. So people just feel uncomfortable because they've never seen it translated that way, even though that's the meaning. (laughs) If you've been around me long enough, you know I just rather look at what it really says in the original rather than follow what people have been doing for generations from one translator to the next. So the RSV has a literally walk in the same way that he walked. Yeah, well, that's the literal, that's the outward sense. In friends' writings of the first early generations, this word occurs all the time, you know, walking as Jesus walked, walking in Christ. I mean, and but they clearly mean not walking literally. They mean it in the sense of how to act, how to behave, how to conduct yourself in the world. That's, and they, they knew exactly that's what it meant. The, the negative would be walking disorderly. Yeah, exactly. I, I forgot about but that's right. Okay, shall we go on? Let's read from 7 through 11. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Yet, I am writing you a new commandment that is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says, I am in the light, while hating a brother or sister, is still in the darkness. Whoever loves a brother or sister lives in the light, and in such a person there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates another believer is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and does not know the way to go because the darkness has brought on blindness. Well, okay, I have the word commandment here, but this word basically means in order that you give someone to do. I don't usually talk about giving a child a commandment to go bring the garbage outside, but uh, it's just an order, something you're, you're asked or you're told to do. Okay, in verse eight, we have the true light is already shining, of course, That light is the light of Christ. I mean, you can take light physically, but then take light spiritually, the light of Christ. Whoever says, I am in the light, that I am in this spirit of Christ, while hating a brother is still in the darkness, is still in ignorance, is out of the light. And whoever loves a brother, in such a person there is no cause for stumbling. I should mention this in in Greek because I've mentioned this before. 
But when you have a masculine form like this, the word brother is inclusive. What's called grammatically masculine are always inclusive forms, almost always. Whereas a word like Adelphe, sister, is grammatically feminine. And that would be exclusive, only female siblings. So what I'm saying here is when you get a word like Adelphos, it means brother, but it also means sister. And this is true of all these kinds of words in ancient Greek. The grammatically masculine form also includes the feminine form, whereas the feminine form, like Adelphe, only refers to the feminine. If I gave you this word in Greek, pater, this is the word, Greek word for father, and the plural is pateres. Pater means father. The plural is pateres, but it can also refer to either gender. It can be father, but it can also mean, it can be the word for <clears throat> adult or parent. So pateres can mean fathers or parent. That's coming up soon in the same chapter. Whereas the word meter is exclusive, pater is inclusive. It can mean both the male and female. So it could mean fathers also, father and mother, the parents. Whereas meter means mother, and it cannot refer to the masculine. I hope I'm making myself clear because this comes up over and over again. And this was true of older English too, that the masculine form was inclusive. It could be both masculine and feminine. So a word like he could refer to either someone who was male or female. Is there a Greek word that is exclusive for males, masculine? There would be words, I'm trying to think of one at the moment, like where a job would only be that of a male or something like that, a, a position. So you do get those kinds of words. It's an interesting question. What would happen if, say, a woman would do that kind of job? Would they create a new form or would they use it? I don't know. I'm just bringing this up because it will come up shortly, maybe not today, next week. <clears throat> this has certainly caused a lot of confusion uh, in, yes. in different it, it, Protestant groups and in Roman Catholic too. Yeah, it, it's a, I mean, the word man in English for a thousand years referred to any human being, male or female. But just in our generation, there has been a push to have it mean only males. And yet that's not the case. I mean, if you read your King James Bible over and over again, it's very clear that man means human being, either gender. I mean, there's a big difference between grammatical gender and natural gender. And this is true linguistically. In English, we talk about masculine, feminine, and neuter. But other languages have more genders. They may have six or eight genders, like Swahili or uh, Fula. Another African language has 24 genders. Things get very complex, and it just shows some ignorance when, in English, we're kind of forced to use one or the other here. But I'm just saying this word man, that was the meaning. Even in the word manhood, you'll find, I think, in the Bible, meant humanity. It didn't mean some male's virility. I should talk more about this when we get to some other words here, but I'm just pointing this out between exclusive and inclusive linguistic categories because this is very complex depending on the language you speak. And English has been undergoing a lot of changes in our generation as to people not wanting to have what was originally inclusive 
to be continued to be inclusive. There are those who want it to only mean masculine and no longer be inclusive. I'm thinking like the word poet and poetess. Poetess could only be a female poet, whereas poet could be either a man or a woman. Uh, she was a wonderful poet. She was a great poetess. Just like tiger, a tigress is clearly only a female tiger, whereas tiger could either be male or female. The English word cat can be either male or female, whereas tomcat is only a male. On the other hand, a word like dog can be male or female, whereas a bitch is a female dog. It goes on and on like this. Words have inclusive or exclusive meanings. And when you're teaching English to foreigners, you need to explain these kinds of things to them. But it even gets more complex in modern English because of the changes in people's views on these things. I have a question about Adelphos in uh, verse 11, and I wonder if anyone's English translation expands that into brother or sister. Mine translates it into brother and sister, but it says in the Greek the word is Adelphos brother, which is what it is. But again, it's generally the masculine can, is an inclusive category. Not always, but generally. And we'll see it again when we get down to young children and young men and these other words that are used, young men and what else do we have here? But this occurs over and over again. You kind of know this automatically if you've been reading the King James Version because it's very clear that what is the masculine form is not only masculine, it's inclusive. Okay, where are we? Okay, in verse 11, you have both literalness, you know, and talking about darkness being literal darkness. And if you have darkness, you don't know you're, where you're going because brought on blindness. But again, you can also be talking about spiritual ignorance or sin even, and that's not literal. This word skotia, yeah. uh, does it have spiritual meanings as well as literal in the Greek? Let me look it up in the dictionary. I know it means darkness. Uh -huh. Skotia, the state of being devoid of light, darkness, gloom. And the second meaning, darkening of the mind or spirit, mm -hmm. darkness, mm -hmm. figuratively of ignorance in moral and religious matters, mm -hmm. especially in Joannine usage as a category including everything that is at enmity with God, earthly and demonic. Okay? Thank you. Okay, I think we're going to end in a minute, but let me just start this first verse and say a thing or two about it, because again, we have here verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven on account of his name. <clears throat> this is the same word, technia, that we had up above, okay? But it's more now in the sense of a young person, a real child, but a dear learner. Again, these are all his students of whatever age. Dear learners, dear students, my dear congregation, okay? That's what he's saying here. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven because of the name of him. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven on account of his name. And the one thing, other thing I want to say there is the word name. 
You remember the Greek anima basically means name, but it also means the, the basic essence, the basic nature of something. Of course, in Hebrew, even modern Hebrew, El Hashem is the way that even modern Jews will refer to God, calling him the name in Hebrew, rather than saying God. And so often when we're talking about the name of God, we're often talking about his power. He is the power. I just recently looked up uh, the 23rd Psalm, and that's how it starts out. Hashem. <laughs> the name is my shepherd. Oh, okay. Very good. So, anyway, in the next session, next time, you'll see these words, fathers, children, young people. Again, don't take them meaning the masculine forms, okay? The fathers are the adults, the uh, fathers and mothers. The children are male and female kids, young people. Well, the Greek, the masculine actually says young, it's the male form, young men, but it is both young men and women. I hope I can make this point clearer next time because it really will help in understanding so much more in reading the Bible if the translations are very confusing or whatever to understand this point because it's an important linguistic point and it will help ease the way. So if you just don't think so literally as this has got to be masculine or males only. Okay, any other questions, comments? Well, I think it's interesting in verse 7 and 8. I've been looking at those, and verse 7 says, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which he had from the beginning. And then verse 8 begins, again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you. So it seems almost like there's a contradiction there. He's saying in 7 that he's not writing a new commandment, and then he says in 8 that he is writing a new commandment. I'm looking at the Greek here. Hold on. Let me look at this word by word. Okay, beloved ones, not a new commandment I am writing to you. On the contrary, it's an old commandment which you were having had from the beginning. And the commandment, the old one, is the word, the, again, the word meaning what I've said, which you heard. And then in 8, again, I'm writing to you a new command, a new order, giving you a new order, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the light, the true one, already is shining. I think that new commandment maybe is going on into 9 and 10 about the light being within and so forth. I was going to suggest an interpretation, Pat. From the time of Jesus, it's been the commandment of love one another and love God. So it's old in that sense that it goes back to Jesus. But for the people that John is addressing, it's a new commandment because they, they have recently come into the faith. And so for them, it's new, even though it's been there for a long time. He's not introducing something new now, but rather new for the congregation that's hearing it. Yeah, that makes good sense here. Okay, thank you. Okay, so uh, next week we'll, we'll begin with verse 212, and just looking at these different levels Again, the technia are all his students, his beloved followers. 
and how he breaks them up into fathers and young men and young children. And it's a different word for child here, for those before puberty. But again, these aren't to be taken in a literal sense, an outward sense, but as to a, a level of spiritual development. Children, not biologically children, but children in the faith. Yeah, those who are, you know, like babes in the faith compared to the fathers. Actually, they use that word, the fathers of the church, those writers, early Christian writers who were very profound writers, that sense. These are the adults who are uh, the experts at this point, <laughs> or however we can translate that word. And then, of course, the young men are somewhere in between. They're on the way. And then the young children are those who are very young. He doesn't use the word babes here, but that would be, you know, someone just starting right off. Okay, good. Thanks. I think we're finished for today, and we'll begin with this section 212 next time and proceed from there. All right? Thanks, Henry. Thank Take you. care, everyone. Thanks, Henry. Thanks, Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Good to see everyone. This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The introduction and credits were read by Chip Thomas. The quote in our introduction is from George Fox's work called Some Principles of the Elect People of God Who Are in Scorn Called Quakers. The reference is from chapter 10 concerning scriptures. Links can be found in the show notes to this episode. We welcome feedback on this or any of our podcast episodes. Contact us through our website, ohioyearlymeeting.org, or email us at oimconservative at gmail.com.